turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at this uh, final passage in this series that I've done, uh, trying to connect, or at least show you that the connections continue through uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to read the Gospel of John. What I'm trying to, what I'm trying to, to do is connect. We did part of Genesis, the, the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11. We did all of Revelation this last year. And I'm trying to show you how there is a, there is a huge arch of redemptive history that starts in Genesis and goes into the New Testament. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Nothing was made without Him. He made all things. When you connect all those dots, when you put them all together, you see that Jesus, in His coming, inaugurates a new creation that we are living in today. It is the kingdom of God. That is the new creation that we are privileged to be citizens of and part of wherever we are. Whatever country we live in, whatever culture we live in, we are part of that kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of God and we're taking the kingdom with us into that culture. That's our mandate to renew the face of the earth. And so I'm trying to connect these dots for you. And this morning we're going to talk about the final temple. The final temple. And so in John chapter 2, we're going to read these few verses, very familiar text, um, starting in verse 13. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, you can look it up on your phone. I'm sure some of you have apps that uh, are have Bible in it. I do. And uh, let's read 13 to 25. Now hear God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, this is a very familiar text. Jesus driving out the merchants and the livestock out of the temple. Uh, you've seen it in movies perhaps, you've imagined it in your mind. He makes a whip out of cords and grass and stuff and he starts just going through the temple. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background so that you see what the scope of what he did was. 
this was uh, an unbelievable act that he perpetrated on this marketplace that was in the temple. The temple, if you've seen uh, images of it, uh, reconstructions, maps of it, was on a site, the Temple Mount, where the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque is today, uh, where it was 35 acres. The building was 35 acres, including the courtyards and all the buildings and the storage rooms and so forth. And it was built in a square and, and all around the peripheral, inside the wall, was this massive uh, acreage that was just called the court of the Gentiles. So Gentiles could go, if they were proselytes or Gentiles who were curious or Gentiles that were thinking about uh, you know, joining the church and becoming part of God's people, they could go into that part of the temple. And it was the largest part of the temple square footage wise. It was huge. In this, you're going to see the heart of Jesus. This is what it means to be a kingdom person, a kingdom citizen. We come to church, we claim that we're, we're Christians, we want to be Christians. Here's, he's giving you his heart. He's telling you, this is what it means if you're going to live in my kingdom. Here is the ultimate values you're to have. We see the heart of Jesus. Secondly, we see the heart of man. We see the people that he was dealing with who were dangerous people. These were people that were dangerous, that had weapons, they had power, they had the means to do you great harm and everybody that was in your family. There was no safety in what he did. And finally, we'll look at the sign. The heart of Jesus, the heart of man, and the sign. So, what do you see in this text from the heart of Jesus? Look at verse 13. He says it was the Passover and he went up to Jerusalem. He didn't go and do it in some side area. You know, he was just in Cana of Galilee and at a private wedding for people that were at risk of being shamed and found guilty of not providing enough for the wedding feast, quietly so no one could see what he did, he turns water into wine and he saves them from shame and guilt. Shame because it would have been an embarrassment beyond belief to have run out of wine at the wedding. The groom, the groom was responsible, not the, the bridegroom. Uh, unlike the Western weddings, the, the man paid. And he would have been guilty of perhaps a civil lawsuit because the family of the bride could have taken him to court for not having supplied. So he was open to both charges, this bridegroom. Jesus saves him by making water wine. And of course it was a sign because, and I, we're not going to go over all that, but it was pointing to something else. His own blood, his own body, his own sacrifice, and all of that. So in Passover, right away, same chapter, he does the opposite. He goes at Passover. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the center of power, to the biggest feast they had. Twin of the city is swollen with people. And symbolically, what are they there to do? Kill the lamb. Sacrifice the lamb. So Jesus, in that one act, is pulling together all of these strands into Himself and showing you that He is fiercely opposed to anyone who is abusing His Father's house, who is extorting and misusing the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was God's idea. It was the place where God was saying, I'm going to open My presence to any race, color, creed, any group of people. You are welcome in our house. 
Come and see. Come and investigate. Come and look. Maybe your heart will be changed. Maybe things will happen for you. And we do the same. Every Sunday we open our doors and we pray that God will bring into this church the least, the last, and the lost. We want people that are broken. We want people here that are hurting. We want you here when you sin and when you're messed up. And the reason we want you here is because I'm here. And I'm that. And others are here. And you're that. You see, we want them to come because how in the world are you going to get saved from shame and guilt? How is it going to be erased? You've got to come to God into His presence. And the temple was His presence. So this beautiful, the largest area, by the way, of the whole complex was the court of the Gentiles where people could come and find God because His heart was for the nations. And His people were to be a light to the nations. A city set on a hill. That's why they built it on top of a hill. And they had turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus, by the way, goes back. If you have a Bible, a study Bible, or one with a concordance, it'll show you. He's quoting Jeremiah. He's quoting all these guys. They had already said the same thing. Because they were doing it back then. This was nothing new. They were rapacious. in their desire for money and power and greed. This is how they paid off the Romans. This is how they got everything. This is how they did business in God's name. And this is a warning to the churches in America who are profiting on the back of Jesus Christ. This church does not do it. And we will not do it. When we moved into this building, we all sat down. Your elders are extraordinary. We all sat down and we said to one another, and they won't mind me telling you this, that we will never let this building become an idol for our church. If we don't make it, we'll sell it. How do you feel about that? Are you okay with that? Please somebody say amen. I'm up here alone. Come on. We'll sell it. We'll go worship out in the parking lot if we have to. Nothing can take the place of that one who abides inside that holy, holy, holy place. Nothing. Never. And Jesus, that was His heart. His passion was for His Father's glory. His Father's name. He said, you have defiled My Father's house. My Father's house is to be called a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. And he drove them out. He was sympathetic. This is Jesus, wrath, full of wrath. Not Jesus, meek and mild, good night, nurse. Jesus, the wrathful. And he drives them out with all that wrath and he doesn't apologize for any of it because he's sympathetic to who? Who is He showing sympathy to? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. He's showing sympathy, first of all, to the Gentiles that didn't have room to come worship in the temple of God because it was overtaken by a marketplace. And He was having sympathy on the Jewish people who were coming and being extorted, you know, giving them a, a, a coin from some far region because they don't know anything. Most of these people were peasants. And they're taking their money and making them pay exorbitant exchange rates and gouging them 
taking their money. He cared about them. He cared about the weak, the little person, the Gentile, the person that doesn't even believe. He cared about them. And the ones He opposed were the ones that had the power. And the religious and the ones that were dressed in all these flowing robes. Read Matthew 23. He was brutal in Matthew 23. Pronouncing seven woes on the scribes and the Pharisees, these very people. He was hostile, outrightly hostile, to the religious, elite, the power broker, and their idols. What were their idols? Their idols were not God. They wanted money. They wanted power. They wanted to exploit, to get more. They took advantage of the vulnerable. If a person got there from some far reach of the kingdoms out there and came to Jerusalem, maybe they hadn't been able to make that pilgrimage once in their lifetime like a Muslim does to go to the Hajj. There were people that they had to save up all their lives to go one time. And the first thing they have to do is get a lamb or a dove or a pigeon. And in order to do it, they have to pay three times. These poor people. Jesus is outraged. And that's what should outrage us. Where is injustice? Where are people being exploited? Where are people being denigrated? Where are people's reputations being ruined because they just happen to be poor? Or happen to be of a different color or a different race? What is wrong with the church today? And my responsibility, folks, is to the Bible and the Word of God and to you to tell you the truth. And I'll tell you, we've got to have this heart if we're ever going to make a difference in this world. He was utterly, totally committed to the holiness, the glory, the dignity of God and His will. And they, their reaction, here's how you know, we talked about it in class today. How do you know where your idols are? What do you get mad about? Really mad about? What are you afraid of? What really makes you afraid? And once you can start identifying those things, they are your idols. And if you don't take the time to go in and deconstruct them and work on them, they will control you. They will enslave you. Money will make you afraid that you don't have enough money. Relationships will make you afraid. I don't have a boyfriend. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. I don't have children. I don't have this. I don't have that. We go on and on and on. Those things are enslaving us. And when something has got you, that strongly to where it is controlling your, your thoughts, your emotions. Not that you shouldn't be concerned about it and even working hard to, to, to reverse some of those things, but when they are absolutely the, the, the bottom line for you and everything, you have got a problem. You've got an idol. And Jesus came to drive out not just the, sim, the, 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 the sheep and the oxen and the doves and the people that were doing all these things. He was getting rid of their gods. He was cleansing the temple of the gods of this world. Sweeping them out. So it would be pure and ready to receive the true sacrifice. The real Lamb of God. So this shows us the heart of man. Jump down to the last few verses. I I put this out of order because I want you to see what he was. Here's Jesus and his concern. Here's the people and their concern. Look at verse 23. This is the heart of man. 
They're interested in faith, power. They're not interested in faith in Jesus. They're interested in faith in the signs. Seeing, and here's, here's what you need to know. Seeing is not believing. You all know that? Seeing is not believing. If Jesus appeared today with all of our technology, what would, what would somebody say? Fake news. Right? It would be fake news. Or it would be this new technology where they're able to put people's faces onto other people and completely uh, deceive. I mean, it takes an expert to tell which is, which is the bad one. That's all they would do today. They would, they would, by the time you saw it, you'd, you'd already be rationalizing why you're seeing it. Seeing never causes faith. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. Because that's what the Holy Spirit takes and, and frees you so that you can believe. It's God's Word, God's Bible, your Bible. In verse 23 it says they believed because of the signs He did. See the signs, look folks, I mean, <laughs> signs cannot save you. I mean, there's a stop sign out there. Go, go hold on to it. Somebody will run that thing one day and squash you. A sign cannot save you. But that sign points to something else. And the Bible is full of that imagery. The sign is pointing us to something else. But they believed because of the signs. They didn't believe because of who performed the sign. That's a world of difference. I hope you get that. That's the difference between the gospel and everything else. Believing in Him, not the sign. Believing in Him, not anything else. Money won't save you. I've had lots of money. I've lost lots of money. And I have less. You see? It goes up and down. And all of you know those people, right? You've known people who have made a fortune, lost a fortune. And then made it again. And then lost it again. Don't put your hope in those things. He knew what was in them. Look at 24 and 25. He knew what was in them. What he, all he's saying is he knew that what they were really believing was the desire for power. And they would have, if they could have, forced him uh, before Pilate and tried to you know, cause a, uh, an open rebellion with guns and knives and pitchforks and that whole thing. And Jesus was not into that. He knew what was in man, so he did not commit himself to them. He drew away. Not until you're ready to believe in Him, not until you are, are ready to transcend the sign and trust the sign maker, the one who's doing the sign, it's no good to you. Faith in Jesus, I'm just going to tell you right now, if you believe in a lot of doctrines, they will not save you. Even Reformed doctrines, and I've given my life to that. But the Reformed doctrines can't save you. Who saves you? The one the doctrines are pointing to. They're trying to get you to go to that person and put your whole trust and faith in Him plus nothing. And until a person is willing to do that, there was just no way they were going to find salvation. You cannot trust signs, miracles, mighty works, because even unbelievers can perform those. We saw that with Pharaoh and his magicians, and we saw it at other times. Even in Jesus' day, there was a Messiah on every corner in Jesus' day. And they were all hawking their goods. And so, at the beginning of his ministry, he was like one of them. 
And he'd do a miracle and they'd say, they'd all the crowd would run to him. And then this guy would do something and they'd all run over to him. But eventually Jesus' miracles had something different about them. Do you know what was different about his miracles? You know what was really different about Jesus' miracles? They were his miracles. Because he was doing them. They were genuine. They were real. They touched people. They actually did something. It wasn't fakery. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. He really healed them. He knew when power came out of Him. He knew when He raised a dead body. He knew because He was going to give His life for that dead body. He was going to give His blood for that child who died. He he knew what He was doing and it was real because it was going to cost Him. The sign wasn't just pointing to Him. And a lot of people in churches today, I hear it all the time even in our church, so be careful, I'm giving you a warning. People want to talk about God in some sort of an abstract. No, we don't know anything about God and we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit until you come and encounter Jesus Christ and know Him. Then the Father is revealed to you and then you can receive Holy Spirit because He sends Him. You see, the only way you can encounter the Trinity is through the mediation of His Son. He designed it that way. And so we have got to Jesus Christ is central. We don't want to talk about God. I I love the doctrine of the Trinity because of that. Because now I can know the Father and I can experience the Holy Spirit and follow His guidance and have His, His life pulsing in my life and confronting my idols. What what hope would I have if I'm trying to do it with free will? I can't pass a plate of chocolate chip cookies up with my free will, or my, my willpower. And don't look at me like that. Neither can you. You pass a plate of chocolate chip cookies, the only thing you're asking, you're not asking how many will I have. The only question going through your mind is how many am I not going to eat? Right? The rest of you are, need to prayer for lying. All right, you've got... And come on, you want to rely on your willpower. Some people have amazing willpower, but only for certain things. And other people have all willpower for some things. Nobody has all willpower. Willpower will not do it. You need somebody else's power. Christianity is all about coming to Him with no what? No power. I got no power. I have no, I'm morally bankrupt. I'm not a good person. I'm not okay. I'll never be okay. You make me okay. He is always center. He is the central piece of our faith and connects everything in Him. The Father was delighted to glorify His Son. Delighted to send the Spirit to show us His Son. Do you get that? Does that charge your battery a little bit? I hope it does. Let's look at the sign and then I'm going to close very quickly. So we've seen that we looked at the heart of man. You know, they want power, we want power, we want money, we want influence. Uh, we, the heart of Jesus is for the glory of God, for the holiness of God, for God's presence among His people, and He is opposed to anything that would denigrate or diminish that in any way. He cares about the weak, the least, the last, and the lost. And such were we. Okay, so what about the sign? This is, 
I don't even know. Let me just give it to you quick because it's too much. And I don't know if I can make it through without getting emotional. You know, as a Presbyterian, I took an oath not to be emotional. Uh, at Presbytery, you have to serve. Ben's here, don't you? Ben? Yeah, he, he wouldn't lie. See, he's a chaplain. He wouldn't lie. And they make us stand up and take an oath. I will not, so help me God, ever be emotional. That's not true. I can't. Can somebody please just laugh a little bit? It is funny. No, you don't, we don't have to take that vow, but you know, anyway. Let me give it to you real quick. What was the sign? I mean, look at the text. What was the sign? I will destroy this temple. Verse 19, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now, no surprise here, there's no way they were going to get it. Even the disciples didn't understand. They had to remember it after He rose from the dead that He was speaking about His body. That's verse 20. But Jesus told him, He says, I'll give you a sign and you're going to see it. And they did see it. They put a, a centurion guard in front of the tomb and those guys were fell asleep and they had, they had pent temple guards there and they fell asleep and they went to the tomb. The Annas and Caiaphas and all the rest of them made their march out there and he's gone. So they had to make up stories to cover that up. Wow. I'm going to destroy this temple in three days. I'm going to raise it up. What is he saying? I am going to die for you. How did He destroy His temple? On the cross. I'm going to raise it up in three days. How did He do that? He rose from the dead. He replaced that temple. And back in the 90's, some of you may remember, there were evangelical Christians, people from America, raising money, millions of dollars, to give to, the, to, to Israel to rebuild the temple. Do you all remember that? We're going to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque and we're going to rebuild the temple and we're going to, because that's a sign of the, the, the second coming. Anybody hear that? Yeah, you heard it. A lot of people heard it. People were sending money. And I was in seminary and I asked Dr. Mawini at my, in uh, our uh, Greek New Testament class. I said, Dr. Mawini, what about us? People are raising money for the new temple. What do you, what's, that, what's that all about? Dr. Mosoni said, oh, that's the temple to the Antichrist. Everybody in the room ca- caught their breath because we all came from that world. We were all thinking, oh my God, they're going to rebuild the temple. And, you know, and he's talking about another temple. In fact, he was talking about this passage. In fact, most of this is from Dr. Mawini. Thank you, Dr. Mawini and Dr. Edmund Clowney. No, that temple was going to be replaced. He was going to destroy it and rebuild it. And he becomes the final temple. Why? Why is he the final temple? Why does this matter? Why would you even care to go out and tell your loved ones, please come to church. Please, you've got to hear this. You've got to find out there's only one way, one approach to God. You have to do something. You have to, you have to supply some sacrifice worthy enough to cover your sins, worthy enough 
to get rid of the evil, you've got to have a, a, a sacrifice that is so beautiful that it will drive out every other sacrifice. Nothing will compare. Nothing I do can compare. Nothing, nothing. Only He is worthy. Please come. See. Come and see. Jesus does this. He is radically... You know how He cast out the money changers? He threw them out. Radical expulsion. The reason He had the right to do that because someday, not very many days later, He would be expelled from the temple, from the presence of God. The very temple, the real one in heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? The cross, death in the grave. And then a radical renewal. I'll raise it up in three days. Resurrection. And then the last thing he tells them is, you are going to, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, everything must go on that cross and die and be reborn. All your desires, all your passions, all your heart. I don't want part of you. I don't want 10% of your money. I don't want to tithe. We don't believe in tithing in this church. 100%. Now, I'm not joking. He wants 100%. Now, I'm not telling you to give 100% to the church. That's not what we're talking about. But He wants you to put your money on that altar. Wants you to put your family on that altar. Wants you to put your reputation there. He wants you to put your political views there. Put them there. Some of them need to die. I don't care what side of the, the... color you are, red, green, or blue. doesn't matter. Anything, nothing can stand before Him. He is a blazing fire of holiness and a blazing fire of love. And He will not, he, he will not countenance any other lover. You are His bride. And so He comes down and He comes down hard because He's jealous and loves you and wants to protect you. I'll die for you. Let me finish with this. Listen to this. This is it. Dr. Clowney, in his magnificent piece, and if you want to read it, it's 25 pages long, but I'll give it to you, The Final Temple. This is an excerpt. Listen. He who uses the scourge, he who uses the scourge must also bear it. Jesus' words remind us from the beginning of His purpose. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The final cleansing, listen, must take place in Jesus' body because He's the true temple. The final place that all sin and evil must be driven out is because that temple is His body. This Messiah, this Messiah, His act is not an architectural miracle on the hill in Zion, but the ultimate miracle of an empty tomb. Will you trust Him? This is the God we serve. This is what motivates our hearts. 
You check your heart. Put those idols on that altar and put them to death. And if you don't, you're going to live in slavery. He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, more than anything could give you, He will give you. I hope you'll trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We know that there are idols in our hearts that sometimes they, they're so strong they can, we can't even begin to control them. But we pray, Holy Jesus, that you will, by the, by the force of the scourge that you bore on your back, that you will use that same power to drive them out of us. Help us. Save us and have mercy on us, Father. Let nothing come between us and the purification of your temple. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.